Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Polemics Rec. My name is Jason Cancelage, and I'm the co-editor-in-chief at Polemics, the official student magazine of the Diplomatische Akademie Wien. On today's episode, we'll be focusing on the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. The Russian President Vladimir Putin authorized a special military operation in Ukraine's Donbass region and told the Ukrainian military to lay down their weapons and go home. It was unprovoked, but this is what Russian President Vladimir Putin unleashed on Ukraine as the sun came up this morning. February 24th will mark a year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine began, and to mark the occasion, U.S. President Joe Biden will be traveling to neighboring Poland, even as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky rallies European nations to arm his troops in efforts to defeat the Russian onslaught. What, what Russia does now, President Putin, do now, is to send in thousands and thousands of more troops, accepting a very high rate of casualty. Just like last year, I now propose to act immediately. But unlike last year, now I have the most convincing argument, our achievements. I don't think that we are at an inflection point. It's a watershed moment. Nothing will be as it was before the war that Russia launched. I think that we have quite a lot of geopolitical implications of the war and the course of the war. To help us with this task, we've invited one of Austria's leading experts on Russia, Dr. Gerhard Mangot, professor of international relations at the University of Innsbruck and a visiting professor in Russian studies at the Diplomatische Akademie Wien. Professor Mangot has conducted research on Russian and U.S. foreign policy, strategic arms control, non-proliferation for more than 30 years, and is the author of several books and articles. His upcoming book, Russia's Aggression Against Ukraine, Context, Motives, and Geopolitical Implications, will be coming out later in 2023. You can follow Professor Mangot's Twitter account at Gerhard underscore Mangot and access his most recent publications and interviews at gerhard-mangot.at. Before diving into recent developments in Ukraine, we first asked Dr. Mangot to assess the broader geopolitical consequences of the war, specifically its impact on the power dynamics between the United States and China. As he points out in his response, the war has already led to a profound sea change in global politics. I would say that the United States at the end of the day is the clear winner of, of this war in the sense that the Ukrainians fighting against the Russian army with Western financial and military support actually make sure that Russia will be weakened militarily over the next one or two decades. It will be, if you think about the sanctions imposed by the West, weakened militarily and financially. So a peer competitor of the United States, of course, will be weakened for quite a long time. And the US can then focus more on China, which they see as the principal challenger of the United States in the 21st century. This is not, however, just to make clear the argument that the U.S. has actually provoked Russia into this conflict. No, this is not what I mean. It was the Russian decision to do so. It was their strategic error. I just say geopolitically, the U.S. benefits most of, of what has happened. While the war's observed gains and losses for the United States are clear, Dr. Mangad argues that the war's impact on China has been more ambiguous. China, I think, also benefits to a certain extent because now Russia is even more dependent on China. 
the sort of strategic partnership they have becomes more asymmetrical. China is now definitely the big brother and Russia is the junior partner. And traditional Chinese foreign policy concern, namely that Russia could, under a Western-aligned government, join ranks with with the with the West to oppose China. This this fear, of course, or this concern is, is no longer valid. Russia has no other partner than China and other nations in the global south. So for China, this is uh, positive, but there are also negative implications for China because the war has also demonstrated that the Europeans can't defend themselves and they are uh, utterly dependent on the US protection. If the Europeans even tried, it would take 10 to 15 years for them to be able to protect themselves without having the support of the United States. So the U.S. is needed as a security guarantor uh, in, in Europe. And of course, the U.S. will use this situation to put more pressure on the European countries to side with the U.S. when it comes to dealing with China. So in this respect, China is also a little bit a loser. As a response to the influx of advanced weaponry from the West, the Kremlin has increased its threats of military escalation, including the possible use of a tactical nuclear weapon. In a rare pre-recorded address, Putin claimed the West is, quote, trying to destroy us and that, quote, Russia will use all the instruments at its disposal to counter a threat against its territorial integrity. This is not a bluff. However, unlike during the Cold War, Russia not only faces pressure from the United States on this issue, but also from other nuclear powers like China and India. They have signaled to Vladimir Putin and the leadership that in case the Russians use tactical nuclear weapons, this would have a very strong negative impact on Russia's relations with these two countries. The Russian leadership is obviously aware of this, but it still might be the case that under certain circumstances, Russia might still use tactical nuclear weapons. If the Ukrainian army is able to move towards Crimea and even take control over Crimea and uh, push the Russian soldiers out from Crimea and Sevastopol, in such a case, which is clearly a very dark red line for the Kremlin. I do not rule out that we will have such a so-called vertical escalation, but I don't think it's likely. When further asked about the topic of arms shipments to Ukraine, Dr. Mangot stresses that without Western arms, Ukraine would certainly be locked in a kind of mission impossible, with the question remaining, how long will Western military and financial support last? Had the West not supported Ukraine militarily and financially, there would be no more any Ukraine, or at least there would be a defeated Ukraine under Moscow's control in the the Russian orbit. So the Ukrainians would uh, have been defeated without Western help. They still need help. They still even need more help, main battle tanks, maybe even fighter jets to retake those territories of Ukraine that the Russian army has seized over the past year. I do think that... For one or two years, this support by the West for Ukraine could be sustainable, but no longer. I think if the war takes a long time, uh, more than a year still, then uh, there will be doubts on behalf of some Western governments. Particularly, there would be demands by parts of the Western population to change course and to force both parties to the negotiation table and to start to find a diplomatic solution. In our view, if NATO and other allies of Ukraine truly want to bring about a significant impact, they have to deliver on their promises faster. In this case, the long-awaited Leopards will be roaring even sooner in the Ukrainian East. Both the army and the civilian public in Ukraine have high hopes for the spring counteroffensive. Hopefully, this counteroffensive will utilize the guaranteed arms supply, which was recently agreed upon during the conferences at Rammstein in Munich. But in the end, the question still remains, how much will be delivered and when? Unfortunately, we have seen over the past three weeks that so many countries that had said and promised to deliver Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine have not done so, or only in very small numbers. 
if you think about the most modern main paddle tank Leopard 2A6, only 17 such battle tanks will be delivered to Ukraine and it will take two or three or more months for them to be operable in the military field. The less strong main battle tank, the Leopard 2A4, will be delivered by Poland, Canada and Norway, but they together will send only 26 tanks to Ukraine. So you see, all in all, it will be about 50 tanks that the West has committed to deliver to Ukraine and uh, Ukraine had asked for 300. Maybe that demand for 300 was a bit too high, but 50 is definitely too low to have a serious impact on the course of the war. They would need more to keep the Russians at bay, to keep the Russians from gaining their objectives. But unfortunately, I don't think we will see uh, a lot more tanks coming to Ukraine over the next three to four months. And uh, that's a pity. What then will be the future of this war? Are there any chances for a solution in the coming months or will we see only further escalation? Well, in the short term, we have to admit that the war will continue. Cruel war it will be. And at the moment, both sides do say that they are open for negotiations. But both sides have uh, conditions for starting these negotiations, which are not acceptable to the other side. So Russia says we'll be ready to negotiate with the Kiev government, but only if they take, that's the wording, uh, the realities on ground. That means that Ukraine should accept that the four partly occupied territories of Ukraine are now territory of the Russian Federation. And this, this is obviously something that the Zelensky government is unwilling to do, understandably so. And even a great majority of the Ukrainian population is opposed to any territorial losses as a, as a precondition for peace. And Ukrainians say, we will definitely not negotiate with Vladimir Putin. We will negotiate with the next leader, as Zelensky put it. And they say, we will negotiate only if all Russian soldiers have left Ukraine, including Crimea and Sevastopol. So this would be, of course, a collapse of the Russian army. So what to negotiate about if the Russian army actually is seriously defeated? So they claim to be ready for negotiations, but I don't see the chance of negotiations in the future because both sides still think they, they can be successful on military grounds, that they can gain more territory or retake more territory. So both are determined to continue the war. And I don't see that negotiations are to be expected, not even in the midterm future. Moving on from these developments, let's focus on events in Russia. How has the situation changed since the beginning of the war? And what further changes can we expect inside the country? Regarding the economic impact of the war, powerful actors like the EU and the US have continued to release new packets of sanctions. But the pro-war rhetoric coming out of the Kremlin and Russian media outlets stays the same. Sanctions only make us stronger. However, there's reason to doubt that this is really the case. Well, Russia has become more and more repressive. And one could say the two years before the war started, the intensive repressive wave launched by the authorities was preparation for this uh, time of the war to wipe out all institutional and personal infrastructure of Russia's opposition. Because of the sanctions, Russia actually suffers uh, economically and will do so even more in the forthcoming years. These sanctions by the West do have a punishing effect, although it is not yet that big as had been expected and hoped for by Western governments. But it will take a long-term heavy toll on the Russian economy. Technologically, Russia will fall backward by decades because they no longer have access to Western technology and uh, there are not too many partners who can actually substitute for the loss of Western exports to Russia. And militarily, actually, we have seen that the Russian army, which had been praised by so many before the war, has actually performed very poorly. So the credibility of Russia as a military challenger has gone down. And that will continue for a while, as I said. So Russia is suffering hard. 
will suffer ever more in the forthcoming years. But still, I think the geopolitical ambitions of the Putin government are much more important to them than the social, the financial and economic well-being of the Russian Federation. On the role of the European Union in this conflict, it is well known that many of its members had previously enjoyed close economic and political ties with the Russian Federation. As such, how will this rupture influence future relations between the EU and Russia, especially in the fields of trade and security? For many years, or even decades, we now had strong interdependence between the European Union and Russia. The European Union has the know-how and the capital, Russia has the resources, so this could have been a very beneficial relationship for the two of them, but that's gone. For instance, German exports to the Russian Federation decreased by 45% only last year, and that's a lot, of course, and this will continue if new sanctions will be adopted by the European Union. And uh, this decrease of trade between Russia and European countries is definitely true for all of the EU countries, except for a few ones like Austria to a certain extent. So there will be no chance for integration by trade, which had been a concept of the German Social Democrats for so long. That's over. It will be an economic and financial decoupling between the European Union and the Russian Federation. And the EU understands and realizes that it can no longer, at least for the foreseeable future, think about security with Russia, but security against Russia. All in all, Dr. Mangold has helped us gain a better understanding of the major geopolitical implications of the war in Ukraine. As the conflict moves past the one-year anniversary mark, his sober analysis should provide much food for thought, not only for students who are just now learning about the war, but also for policymakers and politicians. To wrap up our discussion and to summarize all the topics that we discussed, what are the most likely options to end war? Well, actually, there are three options to end the war. The first option is that one of the two parties wins and the other one is defeated. This is not very likely for the foreseeable future. The second option would be that uh, both militaries get exhausted and uh, both sides realize that they can no longer make gains on the battlefield and that brings them to the negotiation table. And as I've said before, I don't think that likely in the next year or even two. And the third option would be a third party intervention, which of course will also not happen. The West, NATO, the United States will not intervene because they are fearful of a direct clash with the Russian military. So all these scenarios, all these options actually are not to be expected over the next year or even two years. So unfortunately, we will see this war continuing. It will be a war of attrition, as we have seen in many wars before, with a front line that basically remains stable. While we focus mainly on the geopolitical implications of the war in Ukraine, we should not forget about the human dimensions of this conflict. Since the 24th of February 2022, Europe has experienced the worst refugee crisis since the Second World War, and countless Ukrainian men, women, and children have perished as a result of Russia's war of aggression. As we proceed into 2023, we must never forget those who have suffered the most from this conflict, even as we try collectively to seek peaceful solutions. And now for a peek behind the curtain. At the end of our discussion with Dr. Mangot, we asked him several questions about his professional life. Three blitz questions, two options, no right or wrong, no explanations. Let's go. 50 interviews or one academic paper? Interviews. Giving a lecture in front of students or giving a presentation in front of your colleagues? Students. NATO or neutrality? Neutrality, but with an army that actually deserves this name, which we currently don't have. As we end this talk... I'd like to remind you that you've been listening to the first episode of the Polemics Rack podcast. My name is Jason Cancelage. See you next month. <laughs>